0: Hi, my name is Audrey, and you are listening to Miles of Murder, the true crime podcast brought to you from the road. Today's episode is brought to you from Portland, Oregon. Today, you aren't missing too much as it's dreary and cooler. I've spent some time outside feeding the crows and enjoying the moodiness of the city between editing this podcast, and I will say the cold and the rain has me missing the Rio Grande. We were just there a few weeks back, and what I wouldn't give to teleport to that space right now. I'm sharing some of the images of that time on today's post to hopefully warm you up wherever you are if you're cold and damp like me. Speaking of that, make sure you check out my Instagram at milesofmurder where you'll be able to view case images as well as my broadcast location or in this case, former location. So without further ado, let's get started. Content warning for today's episodes include, but are not limited to, abuse, child abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, violence, death, nudity, torture, and murder. These warnings can also be found on today's show notes, as well as source information. Celia Lakin's was one of five children, smack in the middle of two sets of paternal twins, one pair two years older, Daniel and Diana, and one pair one year younger, Benny and Jenny. Her younger sister Jenny was afflicted with polio, which left one leg significantly shorter than the other. This leg was also kept braced, which gave Jenny a notable limp. Jenny being shy and reserved paired well with Sylvia, who had this confidence about her that we all hope to embody. She was missing a front tooth from a roughhousing incident with her sibling, but even then she remained what others would describe as pretty. Sylvia was vivacious and driven. Nicknamed Cookie by her friends, she had this lively energy to her, her light brown hair wavy and golden as it fell just below her shoulders. She picked up odd jobs like running errands and babysitting and other chores around her neighborhood to earn spending money, yet also gave back to her parents. Sylvia came from a modest family that often struggled to get by. Her parents, Lester and Betty, worked as carnival vendors, which had them on the road more often than anything. Struggling to continue to pride for her family, Sylvia's mother resorted to shoplifting. It was this choice that would set into motion a tragedy beyond words. It was July of 1965 that Lester Likens, Sylvia's father, decided to separate the children into various homes and hit the road for the carnival. He had an eighth grade education, five children to support, and a newly incarcerated wife after all. Sylvia and Jenny had more recently befriended two girls, Paula and Stephanie Banaszewski, who attended the same high school. Having spent time at their home and already establishing a relationship, Lester assumed that this would be an ideal place for his daughters to reside until he come back for them. What Lester didn't notice, or perhaps overlooked in his desperation, was that this household already contained seven children and one parent, Gertrude Banaszewski. The family was every bit as impoverished as Lester, if not more, and this time headed by an absolutely overwhelmed and mentally ill woman. The oldest of the children was Paula, 17, then Stephanie, 15, John, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis, 1. Gertrude herself was described as haggard and weighing 100 pounds, fraught with mental illness, and a love of chain-smoking. If Lester had inspected the home that would in short time become a torture chamber and a tomb, he would have noted many alarming details. For one, the home was void of food outside of a loaf of bread and crackers. With eight people in the home, there was only enough silverware and plates for three. The grim space was covered in a layer of filth, and there weren't enough beds for those who already lived there. Without holding much space for Gertrude, the head of the household, and her own story— I will note that she had many failed relationships behind her, and clearly no aversion to promiscuity. Yet, as we continue along this episode, we will see examples of Gertrude slut-shaming and using sexuality-themed shaming tactics as means of abuse. Often, we will see hypocrisy within cases, and this is a pretty good example of that. It is noted that the first few weeks within the Banazuski home, Jenny and Sylvia were treated okay. Celia tended to keep Jenny under her wing and always deflected the hardships of the world, yet this beginning was relatively uneventful. The girls attended school and even went to church on Sundays. Yet it was shortly into the stay that the meager payment Lester, their father, offered Gertrude failed to show up on time. This $20 a week was all Gertrude was apparently holding it together by, and the subtle infraction of being one day behind caused the veil to slip. She screamed at the girls one day. I took care of you bitches for nothing. Her skeletal-like appearance and bulbous forehead reddening, she forced the pair, Jenny in her metal leg brace, to lay across the bed, panties down, skirts up, and she beat them for the first time. When the girls' parents wandered through and stopped over for a visit shortly after this incident, the pair said nothing. The stay was noted in the beginning to only be until September, and so perhaps the girls thought that they could endure it and be home soon, but unfortunately for Sylvia, she would not survive this chapter. Sylvia remained fiercely independent and used to being self-reliant. She sorted through neighbor's trash along with Jenny, looking for recyclables that the pair could exchange for cash, and in doing so, was able to collect enough to buy her and Jenny some candy. To me, this demonstrates Sylvia's intrinsic pull to persevere and really shows how resourceful she was. Yet, when she arrived home with candy, Gertrude didn't see things that way. She accused Sylvia first of stealing the candy, and she began to escalate. Sylvia explained how she had sorted the recycling and then took it in to be exchanged. This explanation didn't enlighten Gertrude, though. Instead, she accused Sylvia of lying. This made-up crime was punishable yet again, by another beating. Food and treats would remain a trigger for Gertrude, as she herself struggled with food. Because of her own aversion, she would often use food as a form of punishment, either forcing it or withholding it. One instance took place after church, when a few of the Banazuski children reported that Sylvia was eating a lot at the church banquet. They were reportedly disgusted by her, and this triggered Gertrude. Gertrude, her oldest son Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon-Lepper prepared a hot dog doused in condiments and spices and forced Sylvia to eat it. When Sylvia vomited the concoction, Gertrude then instructed her to scoop up the contents and consume them again, which she did. Lester and Betty came into town shortly after this incident, and once again, there was no mention made of the treatment within the home. This is a space where the abuse takes a significant turn. It is also important to note that this isn't just a story of adult-on-child abuse, but it's also a story of child-on-child abuse. Gertrude, while mentally ill, was a pack leader of many impressionable yet seemingly demonic youth. She not only encouraged her own children to abuse Sylvia, she also convinced neighborhood children to join, throwing out the theory that evil is inherited. The darkness within this home was evident, yes, but also contagious. It's often been theorized that Gertrude was envious of Sylvia's inner peace, outward beauty, and her tenacity. These qualities that came natural to Sylvia couldn't be obtained through medication, a different lover, or more children, so Gertrude sought to forcibly take it. She embodied that old saying that if I can't have it, no one can, and she demonstrated such a childlike mentality in response to Sylvia's innate gifts. In August of 1965, With her sights already laser-focused on Sylvia, she overheard an innocent conversation amongst developing girls, where Sylvia stated that she had let a boy touch her one time. This fueled this rage within Gertrude that was clearly brimming at the surface. Gertrude went on a loud tirade and informed the other children within the home that Sylvia was a prostitute. She also added that Sylvia was pregnant from this incident and proceeded to kick her in the crotch in front of everyone. When Sylvia attempted to sit down in submission, one of Gertrude's daughters, Paula, kicked her from the chair. She exclaimed, you ain't fit to sit in any chairs. And from this moment on, Sylvia was only allowed to sit with permission. The torment didn't stay within the four walls of the Banazuski home. Gertrude extended her reign of terror to the school as well, dispatching her children to pick up where she couldn't reach. The children kept a close eye on Sylvia, which initially didn't intimidate her. She was easily liked and had a pure heart, so making friends came easy. But unfortunately, those friend groups were also easily fractured. After the initial beating involving the assaults around sitting, Sylvia and Jenny in an act of rebellion went to school and told her classmates that they had witnessed Paula and Stephanie, Gertrude's two oldest daughters, having sex with boys in exchange for money. When Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, heard the rumors circulating, he went to the Banaszewski home and, under the encouragement of Gertrude, beat Sylvia. From this moment forward, he would often make stops at the home and, again, instructed by Gertrude, would assault Sylvia. Coy was also enrolled in judo and would often practice his trading on Sylvia. It was during this chapter that the Banaszewski's far-reaching psychological tactics started on Sylvia's friend circle. Showing that Gertrude was systematically and methodically targeting Sylvia. She was able to get Sylvia's then 13 year old best friend, Anna Sisko, alone and convince the immature child that Sylvia had been telling everyone at school that Anna's mother was a prostitute, once again obsessing over female sexuality and instilling shame around sex. She got the two girls together and instructed Anna to attack Sylvia. This tactic was used again on a different friend, Judy Duke. A similar backstory was provided. Sylvia was spreading rumors about Judy's mother, and Judy was encouraged to defend her reputation. Gertrude then pitted the girls against one another in a fistfight, in which she also encouraged Jenny to join. Jenny refused until she too was beat about the face, until she relented. This would not be the only occasion where Jenny was forced to beat her sister or take part in her torment. It is important to note that the food restriction and the outright starvation had already begun. Sylvia, at this point, was already being forced to eat from the trash and consume spoiled food. Paula, on one occasion, would beat Sylvia so bad that she would break her own wrist in the process. Once casted, she then used that cast as a weapon, striking Sylvia in the face and mouth. The theme of shame was fueled continually by Gertrude's insistence that Sylvia was a prostitute. The irony being, her own teenage daughter Paula was visibly pregnant and had conceived this child with a middle-aged married man, and resided in the Bedazyski home, where her mother had seven kids from various relationships. On one occasion in September, Jenny and Sylvia, along with Gertrude's daughter Marie, encountered Sylvia and Jenny's older sister Diana at a park. Sylvia explained that she was hungry and was given a sandwich by her sister. Later, Marie would report this to her mother, who viewed this midday stack as gluttony and unleashed a heavy beating along with Paula. The pair bludgeoned and choked Sylvia, and submerged her in a scolding hot bathtub to cleanse her of her sins. During this, Gertrude repeatedly bashed Sylvia's head against the wall in response to her going unconscious in the tub. Sylvia persevered. Still remaining in school at this time, Sylvia came home one day and exclaimed that she needed a new outfit for gym class. Gertrude, not being able to afford one nor caring to invest in the child, explained that this wouldn't be happening. Sylvia being resourceful and also needing an outfit for class, stolen from school. When Gertrude noticed the new item and inquired, Sylvia told her the truth, still never wavering out of fear from her true character. Gertrude initially enraged by the theft somehow translated this to Sylvia's prostitution, which only ramped up her hysteria. She threw Sylvia to the ground, repeatedly kicking her in the genitals before circling back to the theft. In her mind, she could cure Sylvia's sticky fingers by burning them severely. She burned each fingertip with a lit cigarette. She then forced her to remove her bottoms and beat her further. At this point, the other smokers in the home joined and took turns burning her body with cigarettes. The children were accustomed to doing with Sylvia as they had pleased. Even John, at 12 years old, would seek pleasure in making Sylvia lick the baby's dirty diapers clean. Sylvia remained protective over her sister, Jenny, and was also driven to succeed. On one such occasion, she returned home from recycling glass bottles all day and was met with Gertrude and the brood of children. Gertrude, by this time, had been recruiting neighborhood children to abuse Sylvia. When questioned about her whereabouts, Sylvia explained that she was out making money for the family. Instead of seeing this as an admirable action, Gertrude instead saw it as a front for, you guessed it, prostitution. She yet again accused Sylvia of spending her time prostituting, and in response to this, she instructed her to remove all of her clothing. Sylvia initially refused out of modesty and embarrassment in front of her peers, yet was met with the threat of Jenny being abused if she resisted. She reluctantly removed her clothing and was then forced to insert a glass Coke bottle she had collected for recycling that day as the children looked on. Despite all of Gertrude's accusations, Sylvia was the virgin she adamantly proclaimed she was and now was wincing in severe pain from the bottle. Displeased with Sylvia's minimal efforts to traumatize herself, Gertrude strode angrily across the room and slammed her hand against the bottom of the bottle, forcing it further inside Sylvia. Upon removing the bottle, it was noted that a considerable amount of blood was present. This incident, the repeated kicks to the genitals and abdomen and the dehydration, would render Sylvia incontinent at 17. Unable to hold her bladder and unintentionally urinating and defecating on herself, Gertrude lent no pity and instead rendered Sylvia unfit to live with humans. She sequestered her victim to the dark basement on October 6th. I'm not sure how Gertrude thought that this would go, yet it's noted that she was enraged to learn that Sylvia had been using the restroom on the floor. In response, Gertrude would fill their clawfoot tub with scolding hot water and dunk Sylvia in it. These baths would take place sporadically, sometimes multiple times a day, sometimes not at all. Following these baths, her daughter Paula would rub salt into the open wounds left from the beatings. Sylvia would be thrown down the basement steps and tied to the railing of the stairs, her feet just barely touching the ground. She was kept naked and rarely fed or provided water. Gertrude's son John seemed to particularly enjoy this basement chapter. He would often visit Sylvia and, with his mother's encouragement, force her to clean the basement by eating her own feces and drinking her collected urine. But John wasn't the only one excited about things. A neighborhood boy, Ricky Hobbs, 14, at one point was an honor roll student and reportedly a stand up kid, started acting as Gertrude's right hand man. It is suspected that she might have groomed him into this position and the pair became sexually involved, yet reports vary. At this stage, the family turned Sylvia into a money making opportunity, not through her recycling efforts or through legitimate work that she attempted to demonstrate but through charging people to come look at her ever-deteriorating body and even partaking in abusing her themselves. They would pay five cents to gawk, insult, humiliate, strike, burn, and mutilate their captive. John offered the malnourished and severely declining Sylvia a bowl of soup with one stipulation. She had to eat it with her fingers. Eagerly, she accepted, and when she went to eat, he quickly removed it from her reach. Gertrude eventually relented and allowed Sylvia to sleep upstairs. But like anything, this basic demonstration of humanity came with a stipulation. Sylvia had to not wet the bed. The issue was that Sylvia had no control over her bodily functions at this stage. Her kidneys were so damaged by dehydration and abuse that she couldn't hold urine if she tried. Eager to sleep on a mattress for the first time in eternity, she agreed to the offer and subsequently the stipulation. That night, Sylvia, tied to the bed, whispered to Jenny to give her a glass of water before she dozed off. She did, yet when the girls had woken, it appeared Sylvia had wet herself overnight. It was immediately discovered, and as punishment, Sylvia was forced to perform a striptease for the other children in the home before being forced to insert a glass Coke bottle into her vagina. As the moment lulled to a natural close, Gertrude, eager to continue her tirade, mentioned the lies once shared about Paula and Stephanie. Not satisfied with the outcome, she stated, you branded my daughter, so I'll brand you. And in this moment, instructed one of her children to heat a sewing needle as she subdued the increasingly weak and defeated Sylvia. It's important to note that the home was void of a stove, so the children hastily gathered matches to heat this needle. Sylvia was forced into a supine position as she was stripped, gagged, and tied down her bare stomach being the canvas Gertrude was eager to get to. It was agreed that the mob would brand Sylvia with I'm a prostitute and proud of it, in all capital letters. Once the needle was glowing orange, she began. Starting with the letter I, she forcibly carved the letter into the teen. As she made it partway through the next letter M, she turned to Ricky Hobbs, her eager henchman, and instructed him to finish. And so he did. At one point pausing to ask how to spell prostitute, Gertrude eagerly wrote it on a strip of paper for him. He burned 25 large letters into the moaning and pleading Sylvia, who cried behind her gag. It is reported that Ricky stopped numerous times to beat Sylvia for screaming. Ricky, marring her with third-degree burns, would later testify that he barely scratched her skin. I'll make sure to include these images on my Instagram so you can be the judge here. After this session was complete, Ricky, feeling unsatisfied, would locate an S-shaped anchor bolt, heated it to glowing orange, and attempted to use it to add a large S to her chest. It's unclear why Ricky didn't complete this task himself, but at one point, it's noted that he instructed Jenny to finish, to which she refused despite facing threats. In her place Shirley ended up branding the top part of the letter backwards, leaving the number 3 in place of an S. Gertrude would re-enter the room and gleefully exclaim, Well, what are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married now. You can't undress in front of anyone. What are you going to do? To which Sylvia, still bound, would meekly reply, I guess there's nothing I can do. It's on there. Later in the day, Sylvia would be forced to display the branding for visiting neighborhood children, to which Gertrude added that she got the adornment at a sex party. Ricky then took Sylvia back to the basement, where he practiced his judo on her before he returned home. It was here when Jenny snuck down to the basement to visit her sister for the last time. Sylvia would say, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell. Perhaps Gertrude could also tell, because she would later retrieve Sylvia from the basement and allow her to sleep in bed for that night. The following morning, Gertrude continued to fine-tune her plan by forcing Sylvia to write a letter that was dictated by Gertrude and explicitly misled her parents by claiming Sylvia had run away from the Banaszewski home, met up with a group of anonymous boys who were physically and sexually abusing her. After this, Gertrude finalized her plan by instructing John and Jenny to blindfold Sylvia and take her to the nearby wooded area where the pair would leave her for dead. After Sylvia finished penning her letter, she was returned to the stair railing. Feeling the immense weight of her impending death, she refused the offer of crackers. Her severe dehydration and organ failure impeding any appetite. She stated meekly, Give it to the dog. I don't want it. To which Gertrude responded by forcing the dry crackers into her mouth before encouraging John to beat her. The following day was October 25th, and Sylvia overheard Gertrude and John talking about the plan to abandon her in the woods. Knowing this would result in her death, she attempted to flee. Unable to run quickly as she was rapidly deteriorating, she didn't make it far before being apprehended by Gertrude. For this demonstration of self-preservation, Sylvia was severely bludgeoned with a curtain rod by both Gertrude and Coy, Stephanie's boyfriend. The curtain rod was already bent to a right angle from the beating when Coy struck Sylvia in the face, rendering her unconscious. The duo then drug her to the basement, where they continued to beat her and at one point stomp on her head. It was overnight that a neighbor would hear screaming coming from the basement of 3850 East New York Street. But when the screams abruptly stopped at roughly 3 a.m., the neighbor felt it unnecessary to inform the authorities. The neighbors noted this to the police the following day as they entered the home with the coroner. It was October 26, and Sylvia, while no longer unconscious, was unable to speak intelligibly or maintain proper motor function. Gertrude retrieved her from the basement and offered her a donut and a glass of milk, but when Sylvia was unable to bring the glass to her mouth, Gertrude became enraged, threw her to the floor, and then frustratedly returned her to the basement. It was here that Sylvia grew more and more delirious as the family of tormentors gathered. Paula instructed Sylvia to recite the alphabet, but Sylvia wasn't able to make it beyond a few letters. Even under the threats of being abused further, Sylvia couldn't oblige. It was then that Sylvia defecated on herself and was ordered to clean it up. Through her increased delirium from a multitude of things, including severe brain swelling, organ failure, and malnutrition, She groaned loudly, pointing to each person in a jerking fashion and exclaiming, You're Ricky, and you're Gertie. And what I can imagine is a haunting scene that surely hangs in the back of the minds of everyone present. Gertrude screamed at her to shut up. Later in the day, John would hose down Sylvia as he laughed. It's important to note that the temperature for that area of Indianapolis for that time of the year was about 38 degrees, according to my research. We all know that basement temperatures are going to be cooler, so couple that with being hosed down, and I can only imagine how cold it was. In Sylvia's diminished state, I have my suspicions that this could have sent her into shock. In an effort to survive, Sylvia attempted one last time to flee the basement. In response to this, Gertrude caught her and stomped her head repeatedly. Later in the day, Richard Hobbs arrived at the home and quickly shuffled to the basement, where he discovered Stephanie... Clutching the emaciated and beaten Sylvia, she cried. Richard and Stephanie decided in this moment to give Sylvia a warm bath. It was here in the warm tub, fully closed, Sylvia would mutter, Oh, Daddy was here, before she succumbed to her injuries. Upon realizing she was no longer breathing, the pair attempted CPR as Gertrude screamed that Sylvia was faking. She fetched a book and repeatedly beat Sylvia's corpse while screaming, "Faker!" When this didn't yield the results that she had hoped, she barked at Richard and instructed him to go to the nearest payphone and phone the police, as the house had no working phone. The remaining children hastily returned Sylvia to the basement as they waited. It was October 26, 1965, and Sylvia Lichen was 17 years old when she took her last breath. In short time, the police would arrive, and Gertrude would instantly start peddling her story that Sylvia had run off with a group of boys due to her prostitution habit and be returned in this condition. She would fetch the previously written letter as her proof. That letter read, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something, so I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I'm a prostitute and I'm proud of it. I've done just about everything that I can do just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I also have cost Gertie doctor's bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all of her kids. Gertie, oddly enough, insisted on the formal salutation and also that Sylvia not sign the letter. I personally wonder if she had planned to add to it in the future. When the authorities arrived, Paula was clutching a Bible. Gertrude looked gaunt and worried, and on the bare-soiled mattress was the bludgeoned, malnourished, and mutilated corpse of Sylvia Lykens. Gertrude added that she had been attempting to doctor the child and clean her wounds with rubbing alcohol after she found her bare-breasted and clutching the note on their porch. Gathering statements from each child, Jenny recited hers as instructed before adding in a low whisper, Get me out of here and I will tell you everything. It was this that would be the catalyst for the impending arrest. The formal statement provided by Jenny prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Banaszewski. Hoy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were arrested on suspicions of Lycan's murder. The three eldest Banaszewski children and Coy Hubbard were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center. The younger Banaszewski children and Richard Hobbs were detained at the Indianapolis Children's Guardians Home. From the jump, Gertrude adamantly denied and downplayed her involvement. She fully blamed her children and the neighborhood children for the abuse and murder of Sylvia, adamant that Paula was primarily to blame for the situation. She noted that she did force Sylvia to sleep in the basement, but pinned the repeated beatings and torture on the children, mainly Paula and Coy Hubbard. Paula, showing no remorse, signed a statement admitting to beating Sylvia, breaking her own wrist while punching her and throwing her down the stairs numerous times. John Jr. also admitted to striking Sylvia using mostly his fist and that he burned her with matches on several occasions. He also added that his mother repeatedly burned Sylvia with cigarettes. He told police, Everyone but the baby burned Sylvia. Five other children, Michael Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko were all arrested as well. They were charged with causing injury to a person and each released into the custody of their parents under subpoena to appear in the upcoming trial as witnesses. The Autopsy the autopsy conducted by Dr. Arthur Kebble would reveal horrific details ironically left out during the numerous confessions and downplays of involvement. Sylvia's body revealed that she had suffered in excess of 150 separate injuries over her entire body. The wounds varied in nature as they did location, but included burns, bruising, muscle and nerve damage, and lacerations, all in various stages of healing. Most of the skin on her right knee, face, breast, and neck had been peeled or receded. Her lips had also been shredded and bitten through. Without seeing this autopsy report personally or being present for it, I can't speculate with full confidence, but I do wonder if some of these injuries were pika related or in other words, Sylvia nibbling and biting at her own skin for sustenance as she was severely starved and under an unimaginable level of emotional trauma. During her autopsy, it is also noted that each of Sylvia's fingernails were bent backwards, and her vaginal canal was nearly swollen shut. Dr. Arthur Kebble listed the official cause of death as subdural hematoma due to her receiving a significant blow to her right temple. Both the shock received from the severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcutaneous tissues, plus severe malnutrition were listed as contributing factors to her death. It's important to note that rigor mortis had fully set in at the point of discovery, and this finding indicates that she could have been deceased for up to eight hours before authorities were on scene. It's also noted in the autopsy report that her body had been bathed possibly after death, which can also influence the natural body temperature and in turn skew natural onset of rigor mortis. Sylvia was finally laid to rest on October 29, 1965 at Oak Hill Cemetery. The Indictments On December 30th, 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude, Paula, and John Banaszewski Jr. Also indicted were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. All were charged with having repeatedly struck, beaten, kicked, and otherwise inflicting accumulation of fatal injuries to Sylvia Likens with premeditated malice. Prior to this indictment, Stephanie was released on bond with her attorney successfully contending that the state did not have significant evidence to support any of the fatal injury or murder charges against her. In exchange for this, she waived her right to any immunity for any potential impending prosecution and agreed to testify against her family and other individuals charged. At the pretrial, several psychiatrists agreed the trio, Gertrude, Paula, and John, were mentally competent to stand trial, and so they did, together. It was April 18, 1966, that the initial jury selection began. Attorneys for each argued that they had been pressured to participate, and Gertrude's attorney tried for an insanity plea. The trial moved forward. One of the first testimonies was that of coroner Dr. Charles Ellis, who, during his April 29th testimony, noted the extreme pain Sylvia had to have been in noting the extent of her fingernails being bent backwards and numerous deep cuts and punctures that covered the majority of her body. He added that her lips were essentially in shreds due to her having repeatedly bit and chewed upon them. He noted that she possibly remained in a state of deep shock for days prior to her death and that in this state, she would be rendered incapable of resistance or compliance. On May 2nd and 3rd, Jenny took the stand. She bravely testified against all five defendants and noted how her sister was targeted and abused profusely. She was adamant that the testimony from the brood as well as the rumors they continually attempted to spread were false. She noted that she herself was also subjected to abuse within the home, but not to the lethal degrees of her sister's abuse. In her testimony, Jenny shared that Sylvia would often cry yet became incapable of producing tears. Her own tears fell readily as she recalled one particularly sad moment just days prior to losing her sister. She stated that Sylvia remarked, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. The details of Sylvia being unable to produce tears were corroborated by Randy Lepper, who stated he had also witnessed Sylvia crying, void of tears. Leper also testified that he witnessed Stephanie strike Sylvia real hard after being ordered by Gertrude to do so. On this occasion, Sylvia was instructed to strip in his presence. During this portion of his testimony, he visibly smirked as he recalled that he had struck Sylvia somewhere between 10 to 40 times while she remained in the home. On May 10th, Baptist minister Roy Julian testified to knowing of the abuse. The family was part of his congregation, and as members, Roy would make visits to each person's home. On this particular visit, he met Sylvia, who was noticeably neglected. In response, he was told that she had been making advances to various men around town and was being punished for such offenses. He took this as the gospel itself and never advocated for the child. Judy took the stand on the same day and testified that she had witnessed Sylvia having salt rubbed into her wounds until she screamed. Judy also testified that she witnessed 10-year-old Shirley rip open Sylvia's blouse in front of everyone, to which Richard Hobbs added, everyone's having fun with Sylvia. To everyone's surprise, Gertrude took a stand in her own defense. Yet, not surprisingly, she denied absolutely everything set up to that point. She denied any and all involvement in the torture, abuse, and death of Sylvia or any child. She stated that her house was a madhouse and that she was so preoccupied with her own failing health and depression, she couldn't possibly control what her children were up to. She in turn pinned the entire situation on them, going as far as to deny any knowledge of any abuse at all. Two days later, Richard Hobbs took the stand in his own defense. He described in detail how he was instructed by Gertrude to brand Sylvia. He continued to downplay the pain Sylvia must have endured and reiterated that he had barely touched her skin and referred to it as light despite noting it also brought blood to the surface of her skin and she continually begged him to stop. He noted that he did not expect to see her on the day of October 26th as Gertrude stated she planned to get rid of her the day prior. He stated that after Sylvia's death, he returned home to watch the rest of his show. When Marie was called to the stand, she initially stood firm in her training and agreed with everything her mother had instructed her to say, yet suddenly she broke, letting out a God help me before she admitted everything she had previously stated was a lie. She testified that she had heated the needle used in the branding and from that point, she sung like a bird in graphic detail about how her mother and siblings tortured and killed Sylvia. She shared that while she did witness all of the children abusing Sylvia, she mostly witnessed her mother and Paula, stating on one occasion, her mother sat and crocheted as Anna Sisko abused Sylvia. Another witness, Grace Sargent, came forward and she stated she had sat beside Paula on a church bus where she overheard her explaining how she had broken her wrist, excitedly telling onlookers she was trying to kill Sylvia when it happened. Closing Arguments Starting with the prosecution, Deputy Prosecutor Marjorie Wesner delivered the state's closing argument before the jury, stating, There is practically no fat on Sylvia's body. She hadn't eaten for a week. We'll never know the pain and the suffering that Sylvia endured. The best evidence of that was the picture of her lips, lips that were bitten into shreds. Wesner nodded to premeditation as she included the note Sylvia was forced to write stating that Gertrude knew she was going to hold on to those notes until she and the rest of the defendants successfully murdered Sylvia. The defense in this case is many. Gertrude Banaszewski was defended by William Urbaker. Her daughter Paula was defended by George Rice. Richard Hobbs was defended by James Netter. John Banaszewski Jr. and Coy Hubber were defended by Forrest Bowman. Despite hours-long testimony outlining how Gertrude was sane prior to, during, and after the crime, her defense chose that focal point and clung to it with desperation. He reiterated how horrific the abuse was, even brandishing the autopsy image and exclaiming how sadistic a person must be to inflict this sort of injury to another, stating that only an insane person would do such a thing and that the jury simply can't send an insane person to the electric chair. He spent his time blame-shifting and noting that the children were responsible for the crime. Forrest Bowman chose a different focus, his clients' ages. They were in fact 16 and 13 at the time and slated to face execution for their involvement. Instead of focusing on the facts of the case, he stated his clients were only guilty of assault and battery and were seeking not guilty for both. George Rice began his closing argument by expressing his dissatisfaction with Paula being tried with everyone else, exclaiming that the evidence provided did not prove his client's guilt. In his closing argument, he failed to acknowledge how routinely the pair was mentioned as the driving force behind the brutality. Paula's time in court was cut short as she had to be removed to give birth to her child, the one that she and Gertrude adamantly denied that she was pregnant with this entire time. As homage to her one true love, Paula named the child Gertrude. Her lawyer closed his argument with a plea to the jury to return a not guilty, stating that his client had gone through the indignity of being tried in open court as punishment enough. James Nutter began his closing argument in defense of Richard Hobbs, failing to note that Hobbs wasn't a friend to any child within the home and was simply there for a suspected relationship with Gertrude. He mentioned how brave his client was for taking the stand in his own defense, and that his client was more of a follower type, unable of being brave enough to brave the victim as he was accused and witnessed doing. Never mind the fact that Hobbs stated himself that he had done it. Instead, Nenner honed in on Ginny and used the floor to make jabs at both her torment and her disability. Instead of pointing to any suspect in the room, he sneered at Jenny and described her as a sister who would limp three and a half miles to a park, but couldn't take two or three steps out on New York Street to beg for help, indicating that Sylvia's death rests solely on Jenny's fear. Nenner ended his closing argument and requested the jury bring back a not guilty verdict, stating his client was guilty of immaturity and a gross lack of judgment, but not of the crime of murder. Leroy New, the prosecutor alongside Marjorie Westner, stated in his rebuttal of the defense's statement one of the more powerful arguments I've heard recently. He said every mark on that girl's body contributed directly to her death, and that was testimony. The subdural hematoma was the ultimate blow. This is the most hideous thing Indiana has ever seen and I hope will ever see. Stating that not a shred of evidence had been produced indicating any defendant was suffering from a mental illness, New again requested the death penalty for each defendant, stating to the jury, The issue here is not about the electric chair or a hospital, but about law and order. Will we shy away from the most diabolical case to ever come before a court or a jury? If you go below the death penalty in your verdicts in this case, you will lower the value of human life by that much for each defendant. The blood of this girl will forever be on your souls. The Conviction While the trial for the five defendants lasted 17 days, the jury would deliberate for eight hours on May 19, 1966. The panel of eight men and four women found Gertrude Banaszewski guilty of first-degree murder, recommending life in prison. Paula was found guilty of secondary murder, and Hobbs, Hubbard, and John were found guilty of manslaughter. You might be asking yourself, what's the difference with those sentences? So let's break it down. Gertrude's charge of first-degree murder is defined as the willful and premeditated murder of another. Paula's charge was second-degree murder, which is defined as the unplanned, intentional killing of another. And Hobbes, Hubbard, and John's manslaughter charge is defined as the unintentional or unplanned killing of a human. This charge can also be referred to as third-degree murder. While Gertrude was found guilty of first-degree murder, much to the dismay of the general public, she did not receive the death penalty. Instead, she received life in prison. This didn't stick, as she and Paula both sought retrials and had their convictions reversed on the basis that their initial judge denied their repeated motions submitted by the defense for a change of venue and separate trials. The ruling further outlined how the original trial created a prejudicial environment and the extensive media coverage surrounding the case impeded any chance of either receiving a fair trial. The duo was retried in 1971. During this trial, Paula pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than go through a retrial. She was sentenced to serve between two and twenty years for her part in the torture and death of Sylvia. Despite trying to escape prison twice, she was formally released in December of 1972. Gertrude, however, was again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Now, often we equate the word life with light. yet in this case, Gertrude would be paroled on December 4th, 1985, serving just 14 years. Coming before the parole board, she continued to downplay her involvement, stating, I'm not sure what role I played in Lycan's death because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I do take full responsibility for whatever happened to Sylvia, though. Still incapable of having personal accountability and minimizing the fact that she tortured and killed a child out of pure envy and jealousy, she was granted parole. Upon release, she changed her name, moved to Iowa, and identified as a devout Christian. For the remainder of her life, she blamed her actions on a medication she took at the time, which she was prescribed for for asthma, an excuse she clung to until her drawn-out and suffocating death from lung cancer at the age of 61 on June 16th. 1990. Paula, upon release, also changed her name in an attempt to hide from the world what she had done. She would also go on to marry and have two children. She was successful at hiding and even worked with children for 14 years as a school counselor's aide under the name Paula Pace. That is until an anonymous call came in that outed her true identity. She was fired in 2012. The child that she had during her trial, that baby was adopted by a non-relative. Paula is still alive today, and before her mother's passing, the pair lived together. Stephanie's charges were ultimately dropped, although prosecutors did resubmit their case against Stephanie before the grand jury on May 26, 1966. This never stuck, though. She changed her identity, became a school teacher, got married, had several children, and reportedly is living it up in Florida. She is still in contact with her surviving siblings. The Marion County Department of Public Welfare placed Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, and James, 8, in the care of separate foster families. All three children later took their father's name after he regained custody. Marie later married and took the last name Shelton, but would pass of natural causes at 62. The youngest child, Dennis, was later adopted separately and would pass at 47. Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. all served less than two years of their sentences at the Indiana Reformatory before seeing parole on February 27, 1968. Richard Hobbs died of lung cancer at 21 years of age, less than four years after being released, and it is stated that he had suffered at least one nervous breakdown prior to death. Coy Hubbard never attempted to change his name and remained in Indiana. He was reportedly in prison numerous times throughout his adult life and would later die of a heart attack of 56 years old. John Jr. lived under the alias John Blake, and he became a lay minister, which is a non-ordained minister that doesn't belong to any specific clergy. This is probably because he was brimming with sin and openly admitted that he enjoyed the attention he received over Sylvia's murder. He also stated that young criminals are not beyond rehabilitation and described himself as a productive member of society. He did add that he and his co-defendants should have been sentenced to a more severe term. John passed away from diabetes on May 19, 2005. The charges set against the remaining children that had actively physically, mentally, and emotionally abused Sylvia were later dropped. Those juveniles were Anna Ruth Sisko, Judy Darlene Duke, Michael John Monroe, Darlene McGuire, and Randy Gordon Leper. Sisko died at 44 years old on October 23, 1996, and Leper, the one who openly smirked as he testified to hitting Sylvia upwards of 40 times on the stand, died at 56 years old on November 14th, 2010. Jenny would be plagued with what we can all assume is PTSD. Her severe anxiety from that chapter of life rendered her medication dependent. She would later marry and have her own children, yet one can only imagine that you never really escaped the memories of what she and her sister endured. She died of a heart attack at 54 years old on June 23, 2004. What about Elizabeth and Lester Likens, Sylvia's parents? They passed away in 1998 and 2013. Jenny was adamant prior to her own untimely death that neither of her parents should be held to blame for the death of her sister and the abuse that they endured, remaining far more full of grace and forgiveness than I personally can imagine containing. And if you're like me, you might be wondering about the home at 3850. East New York Street. After the arrest, the home stood vacant. I can imagine the silence within those walls was deafening. Long gone were the slamming doors and the hustle of nine children. Void was the sound of a skeletal and demonic mother screaming into the hallways and down into the basement. I sat for a long time, and I imagined the stillness that home must have felt for the first time in many years. It stood this way. An ominous silence for years after Sylvia's death before slowly falling into dilapidation. There was talk about turning the space into a woman's shelter, yet that never came to fruition. Fourteen years ago, on April 23rd, 2009, the home was demolished and currently remains a church parking lot. Memories and Legacy Sylvia's death was the catalyst for Indiana to finally adopt their mandated reporter law which is put in place to help advocate for vulnerable populations such as children and seniors. Mandated reporting requires those who see something to say something. In other words, if the abuse is even suspected, they must by law report it. At the time of this recording, 48 states in the United States have such laws in place. The Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center was founded in 2010 and is dedicated to Sylvia Likens' memory. This nonprofit center was initially named Boone County Child Advocacy Center, but it was renamed in her honor in 2016 and remains today. This center acts as a safe space for child victims and partners with lawmakers to provide child victims with age appropriate and trauma focused community assistance, medical referrals, forensic interviews, and guidance. Closing notes. I wanted to take a moment and note that it's clear in the research for this case that Gertrude had issues around her relationship with her own mother, and that her actions could be an extension of this turmoil. I'd like to, at a later date, explore her childhood and her relationship to the choices that she made later in life. But again, um, today for this episode, I wanted to save space specifically for Sylvia and for Jenny. I encourage you to research this case as well. Even though this episode is long, Um, I didn't cover everything. For instance, Diana, Sylvia, and Jenny's sister have visited often and was made aware on numerous occasions that the girls are being abused. She even had this in letter form. Or the call that was made to authorities from a neighborhood boy's father who had learned of the abuse. I'd like to also talk more about the reverend that visited and even the neighbors that often heard screams from the home. Falling down this rabbit hole even further, you'd rather easily find the surviving siblings and tormentors' social medias. And I see that some of them still have relationships with one another. I had to personally stop exploring this as I found myself becoming more and more upset seeing them still thriving, however mundane, to this day. I will say that the family and those associated seem to have continual strings of bad luck, untimely deaths, and continual strife. So there is that, I guess. In closing, I want to provide a safe space for victims of abuse and encourage you to be someone's advocate if you see something. Remember that your concerns are valid, your intuition is nearly never wrong, and that you can save someone's life with just a phone call. All right, well that concludes this week's episode. Uh, I want to remind you that you can also check out my Instagram at milesofmurder where you will see images pertaining to today's case, but please keep in mind those are graphic. Also, that's where you'll go to see broadcasting location, or in this case, former broadcasting locations. Uh, I would love to hear your feedback as well. You can do that there, or you can email me directly at milesofmurder@gmail.com. At Until next time, BC.